evening, everybody. I hope you're doing well on this Wednesday. Uh, it's a little rainy outside, but the faithful, the faithful came. So grateful for you to be here tonight. And uh, as always, just so grateful for um, your prayers, your faithfulness and giving, generosity. Just overwhelmed by how um, healthy and thriving this church family is. So uh, we love you. We appreciate it. Tonight we, uh, we jump into, uh, I guess it is the fourth installment of our series, uh, Miracles and, our, and Their Meaning, uh, based out of the book of John. Tonight we're going to be in John chapter 5, uh, the first 18 verses. If you've got your Bible, you can go ahead and um, turn there. You should have notes. We'll have notes on the screen uh, if you do not. Um, I got to tell you, I, I, I love... I love teaching the Bible. I'm excited about teaching tonight, but I am, I am probably more excited about next week than I have been about a sermon in, in a good long while. So uh, you don't want to miss next week. Uh, we talk about Jesus feeding the multitudes. Um, very, very excited about that. Just a quick little recap. If you haven't been able to be here or uh, to watch online, um, what we have done is we have begun to unpack some meanings behind the miracles in John's gospel. Uh, John records eight um, major miracles, and John uses the word miracle, but the real meaning behind the word miracle its most accurate translation is the word signs. And so what John is saying is that Jesus performed miracles, yes, but those miracles weren't just miracles, they were signs pointing to Jesus as the Messiah, that he was the divine, the one true God. And so uh, we talked about uh, how we define miracle and how you define a miracle is, is very, very important. We talked about the difference between um, the miracle of the sunrise or the miracle of us breathing oxygen, those are miracles. But when we talk about the miracles in John, these are unique miracles. These are supernatural miracles um, that are not seen often. And uh, the way that we kind of uh, described it was uh, as if God, the eternal God, the eternal being, the eternal one, he is kind of uh, existing in eternity and he has created all that there is in the cosmos and here on planet earth, me and you, he has created them in human history as if almost they're in a sphere or a capsule, God himself is outside of the sphere or capsule. He is not limited or bound by time or space. He is the eternal one. And every now and then, God chooses to step in and break into time and space and to do something truly supernatural in our midst. And those are what we call a miracle. Um, now, that's the way that we've been explaining it. But let me, let me further clarify what I mean. I don't mean that God is somehow incredibly disconnected from all that exists within time and space. It could not be further from the truth. God is outside of time and space, but he also encompasses time and space. So in other words, God is here in this moment. God was walking with you yesterday. He's here with us in this service by his spirit, but God is also waiting on us tomorrow. He is all-encompassing of all that exists in his eternal nature. And so every now and then as God steps in and he does something truly supernatural, these are the things that we call miracles. Now, again, uh, the miracles always are going to be things that are not just miracles. They are an, uh, something in, in the physical that is truly miraculous, 
but it is never just about the thing that happens that's truly miraculous. If you break your toe and God uh, sovereignly decides that he wants to instantaneously heal your toe, the healing of your toe is not just about the healing of your toe. It's pointing to something beyond your toe. It's pointing to him, and perhaps it's pointing to some other meanings. And, and this is what we're doing as we unpack uh, the Gospel of John. Tonight, we're going to be in uh, John chapter 5 and talk about Jesus healing uh, a lame man at the pool of Bethesda. Now, if you remember the last couple of weeks, you remember Jesus begins his ministry in the northernmost part of the Israel, near Cana, uh, Capernaum, up in these areas. And after Jesus performs the miracle at the wedding of Cana, Jesus leaves Cana and he travels down to the southern part of Israel near Jerusalem. And then Jesus loops back up again and he ends up back again in Cana, right? That's where we left off last week. But now we pick up here about 12 months after this last miracle has happened where Jesus healed the nobleman's son. Jesus now has gone once again from Cana and he has traveled back down to Jerusalem. So he's like on this circuit riding thing. Jesus is now back in Jerusalem, and the scripture picks up here in verse one of chapter five. The Bible says, after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had been in that condition a long time. And Jesus said to him, do you want to be made well? The sick man answered Jesus, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming down, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said to him who was cured, it is the Sabbath, it's not lawful for you to carry your bed. But he answered them, he who made me well said to me, take up your bed and walk. Then they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was for Jesus had withdrawn a great multitude being in that place at that time. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple. And he said to the healed man, see, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father has been working until now. And I have been working. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that he, that God was his father, making himself equal with God. 
Now, Lord, we come to you with your word, and we just want to ask you to come, Holy Spirit. We ask you to speak to us, to reveal to us things unknown, things that you so desire to speak into our hearts. We want to pray for the revelation of your spirit to fill us and to help us along as we read about this incredible event that happened in Jerusalem. So God, please bless your word and our time together, your people. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, and amen. Now, there are times when you, you will see a photo or a picture. You may go to a museum or something like that, and you see museum curators who will go, and they'll, they'll look at a photo that looks like just paint splashed up on there, and they'll interpret all these different things that they see. I've never quite understood that. Um, but I have seen a picture sometimes where you see kind of what the picture is, but when you begin to look a little bit closer, you see more that's in the picture that you didn't realize in the beginning, right? Um, I remember a few years ago, on the first day of school for all of our kids, we always take photos of them. At, at the front porch, we take a picture of them. You know how it is in society today. There is a celebration for everything, right? Uh, first day of school, middle day of the year, last day of the school. Last week, I went to preschool graduation, and at first, I was like, what in heavens? This is the most ridiculous. I was crying by the end of it because I was so happy for my babies. But um, anyway, so we'd always take a photo on the first day of school, and uh, I have a photo of my son Easton. This was in 2017. And when you just look at it at the outset, it just looks like a boy standing in front of a door. But when you look a little bit closer, you zoom in a little bit more, you see something a little bit different that's in the picture. <laughs> you see his baby sister, Ella, with her face and tongue smeared against the glass. Um, this is kind of how this event in the book of John is. What you see at the outset, you just see this, this you, you hear about this event that happens. There's, a, there's a, a man who is lame and all of a sudden he's healed. And at the outset, it can just appear like that. But I got to tell you, as I've dug into study over this, um, uh, this happening, um, it is layer upon layer upon layer upon layer. I feel like every time I zoom in a little bit more to the picture, something else is brought to light. Something else is magnified. I see something I didn't see before. And so I just want to go ahead and, and, and to give you a heads up. Um, I probably did not do the best job narrowing our focus tonight. I narrowed uh, our teaching down to six primary things I want us to take away um, tonight, but really there probably could have been like 16 things. And so as we're, as we're reading through and you pick up on things, you're going to say that, Corey, he should have he caught it. He didn't see that. He didn't see that. Uh, you're probably right. I, I may not have seen it, but there are some things to see. But for the sake of time, we're going to hone in and uh, we're just going to uh, give our attention to some of the things that really come most into view. Now, this whole event happens at a place called the Pool of Bethesda, okay? I have a photo of what this uh, photo I have. It is a, 
uh, it is a giant replica. So in Israel, we were there a few years ago, and when you are in Israel, you can actually go to the Pool of Bethesda. They have excavated and they, they found where the original Pool of Bethesda is, but um, it, it looks nothing like it did, obviously. This right here in Jerusalem, um, outside the city, they have, they have this um, they had this open exhibit. It's probably the size of this auditorium. And they have a life-size um, uh, model of what Israel would have looked like about 2,000 years ago. And this is inside of that model. This is the Pool of Bethesda, okay? Uh, the Pool of Bethesda, um, it, is, it is often called the House of Mercy. There's another interpretation that calls it uh, the Place of Two Pools. Um, but what's so interesting is that for years and years, those in the secular world who try to disprove scripture and are anti-Christ, um, for, for years and years, they, they, they try to dissect scripture and they try to find little places or people groups and they say there's no evidence that these people or these places existed. Uh, this is true with Jericho. They said that for years and then we found evidence of that just relatively a short little while ago. They said that with Nineveh. We, you know, there's no evidence of the Ninevites. And then over the past just couple hundred years, the argument was that the Pool of Bethesda, the, there's no evidence that ever existed, but in 1888, it was excavated and recovered. God had used archaeologists of that day to uncover this incredible thing. And so we see this model. I do want to get that picture up just real quick again. Um, it's important to understand a couple things about uh, the, the Pool of Bethesda. So when you're reading scripture, it, it talks about the Pool of Bethesda, and it says that it has five porches on it, okay? Now, my porch looks nothing like that. I wish it did, okay? But if you look on the interior, what you see are these columns, and it's kind of like a porch area where if you wanted to, you could sit on the porch and your feet could dangle and close to the water or whatever. But if you look at it from this angle, you can see the top part of it is really called one of the porches, and then down the left side is two, three, four, and then right down the middle is the fifth porch, which kind of it kind of acted as a bridge to this, okay? Now, the pool, the pool of Bethesda, follow me just for a minute. The pool of Bethesda was right inside uh, the walls of old Jerusalem. And so there was a gate, uh, there, there still is a gate there, that's called the Sheep Gate, okay? What would happen as the time of Passover came, if you were here for Good Friday, we talked a little bit about uh, the Passover or Palm Sunday, and uh, what would happen is that there would be um, shepherds who would, as thousands and thousands of people descended into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, uh, as they would celebrate different holidays and festivals, um, there would be a group of shepherds that would come from Bethlehem where they would raise most of their sheep, and they would bring thousands and thousands of lambs down through Jerusalem. They would go around the side into the sheep gate. Once they went into the sheep gate, they would take the sheep and they would wash them through the uh, pool of Bethesda so that they could make sure that as they sold the sheep, that they were selling a clean product, okay? Now, there were a lot of gates around Jerusalem, there still are uh, today. There, there were gates like the Damascus gate, which, which faces toward Damascus. So you wouldn't, I wouldn't say, Pastor Justin, meet me at the northern gate. I would say, meet me at the gate to Damascus, and he would know that it's the gate pointing towards Damascus. There's a gate called the Dung Gate. I said that right, D-U-N-G, the Dung Gate, and this is where 
this is where they would collect dung. It would be animal and, and human feces and trash. It was kind of like a, a, a dump site, but it was strategically placed so that um, the odor would kind of be carried away with the wind. And so they were very strategic in how they did this. And so when they placed the pool of Bethesda right beside the sheep gate, it was so that the sacrifices could be purified through the waters before they went on to be slaughtered. Okay? Now, as this festival that Jesus shows up to has come, you have thousands and thousands of, of Jewish people who were descending into Jerusalem, okay? On an average day, a lot of scholars say that there would be up to 200, 300 people that would be surrounding these five porches. Some of them would live there if they were paralyzed or they couldn't move a lot or they didn't have someone to transport them. They may just sleep there. Others may come and go throughout the day. It was almost like a, um, almost like a homeless community where people would come and gather through the day and then at the night they would, they would kind of disperse. But during a festival like this, where thousands and thousands of people were, the lame and the sick had also come to Jerusalem to celebrate the festival because it was required. And so there are scholars that estimate that anywhere from two to 3,000 people, sick, lame, paralyzed, ill people, would have filled these five porches. Now, I want you to engage your imagination just for a moment. I'm not sure if you've ever been in a nursing home or if you've ever been into a sick ward of a hospital, but there is a distinct odor that carries throughout that place. I'm not trying to be crude, but it, it just is what it is. There's, there's an odor that comes from sickness. There are sights that are, are just not you know, kind to the eyes. I want you to imagine 2,000 years ago, without the marvels of, of medical science that we have today, without the cleanliness and the sanitation that we have today, I want you to imagine two or 3,000 people in a very condensed area, the smell and the sight of all these people, but not just the smell and the sight of all these people, but people who have this expectation, this hopefulness, that something is about to happen that's going to change my life for the good. See, in Scripture, it says that the people, the reason that they would gather at the pool of Bethesda is because an angel of the Lord would come from time to time and he would stir the waters of the pool. And if you were a person who noticed the disruption in the water and you were sick in your body, if you were able to get into the pool first, you would be healed, but no one after you would be healed, right? Now, in a lot of, uh, in a lot of your Bibles, that, that part may not be in your Bible. In, in some text, it's, it's omitted for a lot of different reasons. And I'm not even saying tonight that that was an actual thing that happened. We're not sure if there was truly an angel of the Lord that would stir the water and people would, would be healed. We don't, we don't know that that'd be true. We're dealing with an ancient culture that believed a lot of things that we as Christians do not believe today. Okay, but it does beg the question, why would thousands and thousands of sick people flock to this place if they had never seen anyone healed at the pool of Bethesda? And so it, it, it causes one to wonder. And so as we begin to talk about the events that happened at the pool of Bethesda, it's important to understand the context. It's important to understand where all this and why people would think the way that they think. 
A lot of, uh, a lot of commentators, they, they associate um, the events that happen at Bethesda, they associate it as a link between the Old Testament and New Testament happenings. For instance, there are some that, um, you know, for, for instance, Israel, they wandered in the, the main part of their wandering in the wilderness was, was a 38-year journey. And they were in the wilderness. It represents their spiritual dryness, their spiritual deadness. But at the end of those years, they are approaching a new land, a new tomorrow, a new hope, a new destiny. And there are some that associate those 38 years in the wilderness with this man who has been lame for 38 years in the same type of hope situation. But it's not just that the people are going to go to a new uh, geographical location, but that Jesus is going to take them to a new spiritual location, that he has come to make all things new. There are others that associate the, the, the waters of Bethesda with, um, you know, they associate the, uh, the waters of Bethesda with physical healing, and then some that associate the waters of baptism with spiritual healing. And they're saying that Jesus was kind of ending that type of, of thought process just before he shifts over to the understanding of spiritual healing and, and water baptism. Uh, there are some that believe, uh, Augustine, for instance, he would believe that uh, the five porches that you saw on the display, um, in the same way that they kind of held all the, the physically sick people together, that it was symbolic of the five books of Moses or the five, law, the five books of the law of Moses. And in the colonnade, it would hold the physically sick together. It had them kind of bound. Augustine would say that the books of the law in a spiritual sense had people bound. But again, in the same way that Jesus was not only coming to deliver people physically, Jesus was coming to deliver people spiritually because a new day was on the scene under the new covenant. And so tonight, what we're going to do is we're just going to jump in um, here for a few minutes and uh, I want to talk to you about five or six um, ways that, or, or excuse me, five or six things that this miracle reveals to us on personal level about God, about who God is uh, in this event. So if you have your notes, we're going to be uh, in number one here. The heading reads this. The miracle reveals that Jesus intends to fulfill messianic prophecy. Now, if you remember earlier in Jesus' life, he shows up at Nazareth, and he hasn't yet come on the scene, but he steps in the synagogue, and they hand him the scroll to read. They would read through the scroll day by day, and he, he's handed the scroll and the scroll that he's handed comes from the prophet Isaiah, and this is what Jesus stands up, his first public declaration. This is the scripture that Jesus reads. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who were oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The first declaration of Jesus' public ministry is a scripture that he reads about his mission as Messiah. In an event like this, the first public ministry that Jesus really does, as far as miracles go, what we find is that Jesus' ministry is absolutely about setting the captives free in a spiritual sense. 
But in the events of this man that we see, we also see the parallel where Jesus is also caring about our wellness. He's caring about our health and he's caring about healing of our physical bodies. But even in this, Jesus is fulfilling prophecy upon prophecy upon prophecy. In the Old Testament, we find that Jesus, um, there are three, it depends on how you count what prophecy is and what prophecy isn't, but we find anywhere from three to 400 Old Testament prophecies about Jesus. And in his life, he fulfills every single one of them. He fulfills 60 miracles that are major miracles. I mean, like, like truly major miracles, not just fulfilling a, a prophecy, but a major miracle. On the last day of Jesus's life, he fulfills 29 miracles. In one day of her, excuse me, he fulfills 29 prophecies on the final day of his life. And we're talking about prophecies that Jesus has no control over. Jesus had no control over which Bethlehem he would be born in. Jesus has no control over the fact that his parents would travel to Nazareth, that they would come out of Egypt. Jesus has no control over the soldiers that would beat him and mock him and pluck out his beard. Jesus has no control over any of these prophecies. But on the final day of his life, he fulfills 29 of them in that day. The first two miracles we talked about were the, uh, the water into wine and the healing of the nobleman's son. And in these first two miracles, we do not see Jesus in the limelight. We see Jesus in the shadows. Jesus, if you remember, at the wedding, Jesus, the Bible says that only after the new wine had come out and the, the wedding master had said, this is some of the best wine that I've ever had. The Bible says that only the servants knew what Jesus had done. In the healing of the nobleman's son, it's only the nobleman and the servants that know what Jesus has done. But all of a sudden, Jesus steps on the scene in Jerusalem and he says, it's time. It's time that my private ministry become a public ministry. It's time that the declarations no longer be veiled, but I come forth and I declare that I am God that I am one with God, that he is my father, and I've come to set the captives free. And so in the first part of this, we find that Jesus fully intends to fulfill his messianic prophecies. Number two, what we find is that the miracle reveals that Jesus is a compassionate God. Now, in, um, in some of, depending on which translation of the Bible you read, the Bible will call the sick people, lame people, paralyze all these different things. It'll use a lot of different synonyms and you know, different wordings. But in the King James Version of the Bible, it uses the word impotent. It says these people who were gathered together at the pool were impotent people. Now, impotent then and impotent today in our society mean two different things, okay? But the essence of what they were saying is that their bodies were so frail, they had no energy, they had no life in them, they, had, they, they were not able to uh, do anything physically in order to truly help themselves. And so what we have here is this moment where Jesus descends and he comes among these people as the purest, cleanest being of the earth, coming down to, to some of the, the world's filth at this point. And we have an impotent man who encounters an omnipotent God. A man with no strength that encounters a man with all strength. A man that has no healing in his veins. 
with a man who oozes healing from his veins. And we have this moment of their collision. And what we realize is that Jesus doesn't just come to heal this man because he has to heal this man. If you remember when Jesus is, is going and he goes over Jerusalem, the Bible says that he looks over Jerusalem and he weeps because he is filled with compassion for them. And when we read this text, Jesus doesn't really sound hyper-compassionate, right? He looks at a man who's impotent. He's laying there. He can't move himself. And Jesus asks this question. He says, do you want to be healed? And for the longest time, I'm just like, that, ooh, that, that, feels, that doesn't feel like compassion. That feels like cruelty, right? That, that just feels like you're just kind of egging him along. You're just like, come on, buddy. You want to get healed? It, it seems almost cruel in the moment, but let me just say this. It's one of the most compassionate things that Jesus could done. Because, and I think Pastor alluded to this on Sunday. Just because a person is sick does not always mean they want to be made well. Right? We've all had people in our lives who are hurting emotionally. Someone has done them wrong. A husband has cheated and left them. A wife has been unfaithful. We've all seen situations like this. And for the Lord to come or for a counselor to come or to, for a Christian brother or sister to come and to say, are you sure that you really want to be healed? It's a very compassionate question because oftentimes that question will come because that person doesn't act like they want to be healed. And it's not because they can't do anything for themselves. It's because they won't do anything for themselves. I remember um, here in the last year, I'm not going to give timelines, specific timelines, but here in the last year, um, I took on a major offense from someone in, in my heart. And um, I, I think uh, I'm almost 100% it was unintentional, but it was just like boom, 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 boom. It was like four or five things that I just felt like, how, like if they don't see this, uh, they may be blind or not paying attention or something like that. And, and it was just thing after thing. And I remember feeling so just uh, burdened and so frustrated. And I felt, um, I just felt so, I know this is terrible, but I felt so pitiful. I felt so much pity for myself, and I, I just felt just unappreciated and everything, all this kind of stuff. And I remember I took it to the Lord in prayer, and I said, Father, I don't, I, I don't want to live with this, right? And usually what I'll do is I'll take out my journal, and I'll journal, you know, just, just every little, it's kind of how I process, and I'll just write every little thing and all this kind of stuff. And I was saying, Lord, I really, I don't want to live in offense. I want to forgive. I want to move on. I want to grow beyond this. I don't want to live in this type of thing. And I remember talking to the Lord, and I said, Lord, I just, I need to journal this out. I need to do all this. And the Lord spoke to me something he's never spoke to me before. And he said, if you really want to get beyond this, he said, you won't journal this, and you won't talk to anybody about this. And I thought, hold on, Lord, hold on. Now, we are, we are together to bear one another's burdens, now, if I can't go to somebody I trust and, and unload my burden on them, surely I can at least go to my journal and write all this stuff out. And the Lord spoke to my heart. He, he said, listen, if you truly want to get beyond this, you, you, I don't even want you to write it down. And through prayer and just kind of processing and all this stuff, what I finally come to realize 
is that for me to go and to process with someone, and I believe in counseling, and I, I believe in all that. This was a very specific moment in my life. But for me to go and to continue to process, to ruminate on this thing, to journal in this thing where I will go back in years from now and I will regurgitate what had happened in my own spirit. It was almost as if the Lord was saying, do you really want to be made well? Because if you really want to be made well, you won't camp out right here in this situation. You will choose to focus your mind on something different and move on in the strength of God. And so um, uh, the Lord really helped me through that situation. But I'm telling you, we've all seen people that truly don't want to be made well. They say they want to be made well, but they truly don't want to be made well. And this is the reason why. When we go through hurt and God makes us well and God heals us, all of a sudden there is a new level of responsibility that is upon us. Right? So if I want to be made well over my offense, that means that I have now the responsibility that I'm going to leave this in the past. I'm not going to pick it up again. I'm not going to share it. I'm not going to write it. I'm not going to carry it on my back and pull it out when it's most convenient. If I truly want to be healed, there's a new responsibility that rests upon me. This man at the pool of Bethesda, you've got to understand for 38 years, the man could not feed himself. He was paralyzed for 38 years. How do you think he got his food? How do you think somebody, somebody just came and would make his food? Maybe it was a family member or a friend, somebody he had befriended in the city. Nonetheless, for 38 years, this man never had to work or make his own food, but he had this food brought to him. Perhaps this man wasn't really sure if he wanted to be healed, because knowing if I am healed, that means that I probably go got to go get a job. It probably means that I'm not going to have somebody feeding me for the rest of my life and just sitting like I want to. Now, obviously, there, there are different angles to view that, but let me, let me just say this. In spite of this man's excuses, Jesus' compassion transcends them. Jesus comes to him and, and he says, he wants to tell him, and, and the man says, but sir, and he says, you know, the, I can't get in by myself. And even if I could get in, it's not the right time because the waters aren't stirring. And even if the waters were stirring, somebody would get in front of me and they would cut me off and I, I just never, and he would pile on these excuses. And the scriptures say that in the moment, Jesus just kind of cuts him off and Jesus just looks at him and he says, get up, take your mat and walk. Get up, take your mat, and walk. And as he says this, some of, the, some of the language that's used here, some commentators say this, and I know this a little bit, uh, this can be disputed. But some commentators say that it was as if Jesus was talking to a whining child when he said, get up, take your mat, and walk. I'm going to tell you, I don't know if you've ever had kids or, well, if you have had kids, you've had whining kids. And I'm going to tell you, there's hardly anything worse than a whining kid in your home. I'll say, Ella, I need you to pick up your toys. And she'll say, well, Emery's not picking up her toys. And I'll say, well, that doesn't have anything to do with you. Go pick up your toys. And she'll say, well, I can't because the Legos are in the way. And I'll say, then walk around the Legos and pick up your toys. And she'll say, but I hurt my leg earlier. 
I'll say, Ella, come on. And so there, there's always an excuse, always a reason. But here in this moment, we see the compassion of Christ rise to the occasion. And he says, listen, even in spite of your excuses, I'm going to do you a favor. And I've got to be honest with you. I've got a thousand excuses for all the reasons that I can not do certain things. And I'm so thankful that in spite of my excuses, that God does his own work even in spite of me sometimes. Now, there's a warning for us here in the scripture. Though Jesus is incredibly compassionate, I think there's a warning for us in the scripture that, that we need to pay attention to. And the warning is simply this. That for this man who was healed in his earthly body, there is absolutely no evidence that this man was ever saved. There's no evidence, you know, in, in some scriptures, Jesus would say, listen, because of your faith, your sins are forgiven. Or he would say, go, you are forgiven. None of that language is used in regards to this man. And I think it's important for us to understand that God can often work in our lives even when we aren't right with God. And we cannot mistake the workings of God or the provision of God or the providence of God or the favor of God or the blessing of God. We cannot mistake that for right relationship with God. Because God will, out of his compassion, do good to us, show goodwill, show his graciousness to us even in times when we are not walking with him. And so we need to be careful of those things. But the miracle reveals that Jesus is compassionate. Are you guys with me? Y'all with me? Okay. Number three is this. The miracle reveals that Jesus is greater than the law of Moses. The Sabbath, I'm going to tell you, is an incredibly overlooked gift in Protestant Christianity. We are, especially in the Western, you know, part of the world, we are capitalists. And we work for what we get, and we are Americans, and I'm going to do it my way, and there's nothing wrong with that. I'm, I'm right there in the same boat with you. But let me say this. There is a reason that God instituted this thing called the Sabbath. And it's one of the, the most grievous sins that those in the western part of the world abuse more than any other. I was talking to uh, a professor uh, of mine one time, and he was from out in Portland. Now, Portland is more, you know, they are facing issues that we're not facing here on the East Coast. And uh, he said that he had done a lot of teaching at his church and all these different things. He said that he never shied away from preaching the gospel. He never shied away from hot topic, you know, whatever. Uh, he said that he had preached regarding homosexuality. He had preached regarding, you know, uh, marijuana and legalization and all these kind of things. And he said, even through all that, he did not lose a lot of people from his church. But when he began to preach a series on the Sabbath, he said that he lost more people from his church than any other series. If that is not a diagnosis and an indictment, I don't know what is. The point is simply this, is that although the Sabbath is a good thing, the Sabbath is not a God. The Jews wanted so badly to make this Sabbath kind of like a pinnacle that if you could, if you could pass this test, then you could likely pass all the other tests, that the Jews went and they actually incidentally created an idol out of the Sabbath. 
And when they created this idol, they built fences around the Sabbath. Did you realize that on the Sabbath day, there were 39 divisions of the laws that you could not do on the Sabbath? Okay, so for instance, um, if, if you were in a chair, there's one of the divisions of the law, there's, there's all kinds of divisions, sowing and reaping and plowing and burning and creating and cutting and all these types of different things. If you were a Jewish person on the Sabbath in this time, you were not allowed to recline in the chair that you're sitting in. You could not kick back and recline on two legs for this reason. Because if you slipped and the chair came out from under you, and the back legs dug into the ground, that would have been considered plowing, and you would have broken law. I'm not making this up. I'm not making this up. If you were a Jew during this time, there were laws, divisions of the law, that were set against reaping. They were set against, you know, uh, so for instance, if a piece of fruit fell from the tree on the Sabbath, you couldn't pick up that fruit and eat it on the Sabbath. You had to wait a day before you could get the fruit. You were not allowed, and there, there were so many fences and fences to protect the Sabbath that they were saying things like, you can't even get close to a flower and smell it because if you do and you breathe on it too hard, the flower may be plucked, and that's part of reaping, and so then you've broken the trans, you've transgressed the law. And so it was, it was such this moment of building these things around. One of the divisions of the law was called carrying on the Sabbath. And I find it so interesting that oftentimes when Jesus is speaking to people, when Jesus heals people, oftentimes he'll look at them and he'll say, arise, go your way. But in this particular situation, his words mean so much. Because he doesn't just look at the man and say, arise and go your way. He says this, arise, take your mat, and go your way. What Jesus was indicating is this, is that I've come to do something new. And these laws that you have built around the true law, these laws are going to implode under a new system. And Jesus has come to do something new in this moment. And so he tells the young man, carry your mat. And when the Jewish leaders saw him carrying a mat, what did they do? They call him out. And they say, you're breaking the law because you're carrying this mat. Now, Jesus could have come a day before. Jesus could have come a day after. But there's a reason he chose to come on the Sabbath day. He was trying to make a point. He wanted to do something special, not only for this man, but for all of the Jewish nation. He wanted them to have a new understanding of the law. He didn't come to do away with the law, but he did come to fulfill the law and to fulfill it to the maximum. But they just could not see it. They were so spiritually blinded that, listen to this, a year and a half after this event, you know what the number one indictment of Jesus is? He healed a lame man on the Sabbath. A year, listen, have you ever carried something for a year and a half? That's heavy stuff to carry, right? But they can't, they've got no claims against Jesus. They could, they could bring in people who would lie about Christ. They could do all these things, but they would always come back and they would say, but we saw him heal a man on the Sabbath day a year and a half ago, and justice must be served to this man. And the craziest, this is what the craziest thing about it is all that. This is what, this is what bad religion does to a person. They wanted so badly not to be slaves to their work. 
They didn't want to be slaves to their labor. This is why God instituted the Sabbath, to make them distinct. God would say, look, if you honor this Sabbath, you work six days and you, you rest on the Sabbath, I will bless you and I will prosper you more than people that work the full seven days. And they wanted so badly not to be a slave to their work that indirectly they became a slave to their rest. They became a slave to the system of saying, no, 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 we've got to rest. We can't do anything. You can't even recline in your chair for true rest. And this is the essence of it all, that Jesus was making a point that it is far more about relationship than it is about rules. Now, clarification, rules are important, right? Aren't you glad there's a rule that says, you know, you shouldn't murder people, right? Okay, I'm very glad because I would have been dead a long time ago, okay? So I'm thankful for rules. There are religious rules that we need. To, there, there are guidelines that God institutes. None of that is bad, but they all come second to relationship with God. And the entire Jewish nation was blinded to the simple truth. And this is what Jesus is trying to reveal in the miracle, that he, a relationship, is far greater than a rule than a law. It's number three. Number four is simply this. The miracle reveals that Jesus heals some people and not others. Now, this is incredibly difficult for those of us who are Pentecostals and charismatics. Definitely difficult if you're a charismaniac. They exist. There are people even today that will make Ridiculous statements like, Jesus healed everyone that he came in contact with in his day. Listen to me, not only can I, can I point to a half dozen scriptures where he does not do that, but let's just talk about the current text that we're talking about right here. Jesus has come into Jerusalem because there is a feast. Thousands upon thousands of people are there. And in this colony with sick people, up to 3,000 people are on this porch. And Jesus chooses one to be healed. Hey, listen, even if it wasn't 3,000, let's just say it was, it was just 300. Jesus still only chose one. Let's just say it was 30 people, right? Let's just say it was like this section over here. And Jesus said, I'm going to choose you. And the rest of you, I'm not going to. Let's narrow it even further. Let's say it's you three. And Jesus comes and he says, I'm going to choose one. The question is, why in the midst of illness and suffering and pain, the God who has healing coursing through his veins that can do all that he wants to do, why would he choose only to heal one? And there, there are people that try to come up with explanations, and there are people that say, well, this man was the only one who had faith, or there are some that say, well, Jesus chose the one because through that one, multitudes would uh, come to saving faith in him. We can try to excuse all this away, but the reality is simply this. The reason Jesus chose one is because Jesus chooses. It's because Jesus is sovereign 
And oftentimes he makes decisions based off of his superior knowledge and not our understanding or feelings of what should happen. It's a majestic mystery is what I like to call it. Let me rephrase that. It's a majestic, frustrating mystery that God just throws on the pages of Scripture and he says, this is who I am. And I choose because I'm sovereign and I'm Lord over all. But I will say this. It is simply the grace of God that comes to heal that one. You understand, God owes no one anything. The God of all things owes none of those 3,000 people. No matter how sick they are, they are all a part of a rebellion against heaven and the God of heaven. And it is simply the grace of God that comes down, the merciful nature of God that comes down and says, I'm going to choose that one. And it frustrates us. We don't really understand it because God could, but you didn't. And and we don't understand that. And I I can't even begin to understand the reasons why God chooses to do and not to do. I can't even begin to understand this. But let me tell you what I think that this is. More so for those of us who would read the scriptures in in the millennia to come, this is what I believe. I believe it was a foretaste for us. I believe it was a foretaste so that we could be reminded that although Jesus now only chooses one in this day, there's coming a day where Jesus will choose to heal all on that final day. John, the same one who would write this gospel, would say this in the book of Revelation. He would say, Christ will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. It was simply a foretaste of that day to come. Number five, the miracle reveals, and we've got to wrap up here. Number five, the miracle reveals that Jesus validates consequences. We don't know what this man's sin is, but he was absolutely warned not to repeat it. I tell my kids all the time, I say, if you do dumb things, you get dumb results, right? If you choose poorly, the outcome is poor. It's definitely not in your favor. Now, consequences do not nullify the love of God. They don't nullify the forgiveness of God. Listen, I don't know if you saw the news this past week, but there was, there was a guy, uh, I, I don't follow sports. My son is a fanatic, but it was one of the basketball games, and all of a sudden this fan, like, runs out onto the court. He jumps up and hits the back of the, the backboard, and by the time the camera gets here, the security guards just, I mean, they flattened this guy. He was like a pancake. He just went straight like that. And I thought to myself, my son was telling me about it, and we were kind of laughing because it was so dumb. But I thought, you know what, this is a teaching moment for my son. And I said, buddy, you know what's so crazy about that moment? What's crazy about that moment is this, is that guy was probably drinking a little bit too much, number one. But number two, this event probably spiraled out of control for one reason. His buddy sitting next to him probably said, hey, I dare you to run up and go hit the backboard. He said, I'm not going to, you dumb. And he said, I knew you wouldn't do it. 
And the guy looked at him and said, I'll show you. And the guy runs, he hits the backboard. He's tackled, not only physically is he hurt, I'm sure, but he's dragged and humiliated off the court. But can I tell you even further than that, you know every time that man applies for a job, every time he applies for financial aid, every time that he goes to do anything with his credit, by car, anything like that, you know what's going to pop up on his report? The fact that he was moronic enough to go and slap the backboard at an NBA game. And we look at that and we say, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Yep, dumb actions breed dumb consequences. And that's exactly what Jesus was saying here. He said, look, man, you've, you've, been, you've been lame for 38 years. I don't, now, we don't know what caused the sin to cause this man. But Jesus looks at him and says, listen, don't sin anymore. Like, get out of that lifestyle, lest something worse happen to you. And in this moment, what Jesus is doing is he's saying, listen, there, are, there is blessing, but there's also consequence for our action. We see this in the Garden of Eden. The forgiveness of God was clearly there for Adam and Eve. The Bible says that once they rebelled against God, that God removed them from the garden, but then God himself went. He shed the blood of an animal, and he cloaked them in his forgiveness. He shed the blood for their forgiveness. He covered their nakedness. The love of God, the forgiveness of God, is not void by our dumb activity, but nonetheless, we face consequences when we do poor things. There are writings that are... Uh, written from, from ages and ages ago that talk about the sin of Adam and Eve. And they say that for years, decades even, after Adam and Eve sinned, that Adam could be caught in a cave by himself for weeks at a time, mourning and weeping because he understood not only what he had done to himself, but to his family and to all the history of humanity. And so Jesus is affirming that, listen, consequences are valid. And so Finally, number five is, or number six is this, and we're two minutes late, please forgive me. Number six is finally this, that the miracle reveals that Jesus always empowers us to do what he commands us to do, right? Jesus tells this man, get up, take your bed, and walk. And so the man's faith has to match Jesus' words, and the man is empowered to do that. And I just want to remind us, that if God has called us to be a parent, that when our actions come in alignment with the word of God, God empowers us to be a good parent. If you work with people that you don't like very much, God has still called you to honor those who are around you. And so when you honor the word of God with your actions, God empowers you to honor people that are not necessarily honorable people. When God calls us to pray, for all people. When God calls us to pray for the governments of our land, God is not just calling us to do it in our own power, but he is empowering us by his spirit to do it. And as we do it, it honors him and it grows us up and it matures us. Amen. Now, next week, I'm so incredibly excited. I hope you will be with us as we talk about Jesus as he feeds the multitudes. We will talk about how a little in my hand is a lot in God's hand. And I'm so excited. I hope we will see you back here Sunday and then again Wednesday. Let me pray for you real quick before you're dismissed. Father, we love you tonight. Thank you for your word. I thank you for the revelation that you are speaking to our hearts. I'm reminded that the word of the Lord will go forth and accomplish all that you have caused it to accomplish. 
It will not return void. And so we believe that truth tonight. Please bless your people as they go. And we look forward to seeing them again in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.